Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Nitzavim this morning, chapter 29, verse 9 of the book of Deuteronomy. And this is the Parsha that we read always. The rabbis, in their brilliance, managed a calendar that puts this reading always before Rosh Hashanah. Sarah, I'm so glad you're back. I was fixing to call you. We always read Parshat Nitzavim before Rosh Hashanah. This, so this is always the Parsha leading into the Yamim Noraim, into the High Holy Days. And lots of commentary, therefore, is directed at how does Parshat Nitzavim, you know, relate to um, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the the point we're at in our liturgical year, as we follow not the solar calendar but the lunar calendar. Let's let's jump in. Let's start. Somebody wants to start reading at verse nine. You stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your tribal heads, your elders, and your officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, even the stranger within your camp, from woodchopper to water drawer, to enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is concluding with you this day with its sanctions, to the end that he may establish you this day as his people and be your God, as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant with its sanctions, not with you alone, but both with those who are standing here with us this day before the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here this day. All right, so we are at a covenanting ceremony. We are establishing this covenant, and we've heard Moshe talk about this ceremony before. We don't know exactly what it looked like. We don't know exactly when it took place, where it took place, what the rituals uh, of it were. There are covenanting texts that we have from the ancient Near East that allude to ceremonies as well around recovenanting. And we don't have much instruction about what that was like either. But it seems that it was a common practice in the ancient Near East to, to do this ceremony of uh, covenant. What's the difference with the Israelites? The ceremony is with God. The ceremony is with God. Who would it have been with in other populations of the ancient Near East? The king. The conquering king and the vassal king. And the vassal king and his people would have entered into a covenant with the conquering king. Right? And that covenant says, we stand bound by an exclusive arrangement whereby you, conquering king, name here, um, have our loyalty and we will not swear fealty to any other king but you. That's the idea of a covenant. And if we break that, we understand that X, Y, and Z are the consequences and that if we keep our agreement, A, B, C, and D are the, the benefits that flow from that. So it's very common in the ancient world. The, the radical new idea in ancient Israel, the way they reconstructed that idea and those rituals, is that they have this crazy notion that the king is God. And that that is the king to whom they are swearing their fealty in this covenanting ceremony. Crazy idea. So those of us who at this time of year struggle with the language sometimes of the liturgy, the language, the metaphor of Rosh Hashanah, of even Yom Kippur, this idea of crowning God as king, it's very easy for us to have all of our reactions to that up-down, hierarchical, anthropomorphic, male, power-oriented. We, we have lots of reasons we react to that language. What I just want us to do is reset our ethnocentric, you know, way of viewing the world. It's the only way we can view the world is from our own ethnic context, our own culture, of course. But if we can challenge our ethnocentricity for a minute and remember that 
it was a radical idea to say the only thing worthy of our true and ultimate fealty in this world is not a human being and is not of even what we human beings create as power systems. What is the only thing worthy of our covenanting as a people is that force beyond all of that that we acknowledge as being the greatest force in the universe, the force that makes for compassion and grace and justice and patience and forgiveness, that is what we swear loyalty to. That's what we call king, not Pharaoh, not fill-in-the-blank, who it is to not the Trump. <laughs> so, right, that 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 is what is worthy of our of our ultimate respect and um, and loyalty. It helps me every year to read this and to understand that before we go into Rosh Hashanah and talking about all the king language and um, crowning God as king, Melech Alam, um, God sitting on the throne. It really does help for me to get it that, that, that that's a radical move. And it remains, I think, a radical thing to say is that there's nothing in this world. There's no power. There's no glory. There's no wealth. There's no status that is worthy of our loyalty as a people that is anything we could create as a position. Call it monarch. Call it president. I don't care. Emperor. Only that which is beyond do we crown as what we allow to rule our lives, what we choose as our ruler, if if you need a symbol. So that's the context out of which um, this comes. We are cutting this covenant. It was a dramatic a dramatic thing. Often there was an animal involved. You if you cut a covenant, why is it called cutting a covenant? Because you cut an animal in half and you the parties who are bound by the covenant pass through the pieces of that animal. Why would you do that? Lisa, you're thinking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did it have to do with the blood? And the- sure, you bet. Anytime you've got killing something, you've got blood. And that definitely is a part of the power of the ritual and the drama. Why? Why cutting a covenant do you want blood involved? Purity. So when it's sacrificed on the altar, it's about cleansing, it's about purity. Pure. Why would you pass through bloody pieces of a carcass? Because you're coming new. This is what will happen to you if the deal is broken. This is what you incur. You want that to be dramatic? You want that to be binding? And you want that symbolized in a way that makes it crystal clear that I'm making an agreement that binds me in such a way it's reconstructed by the Israelites to say it binds me in a way that if I don't observe it, I now incur what should happen to me is what happens to that animal. But it doesn't literally, right? But I deserve that. What gets me out of that is sacrifice. That's the tie-in, right? To what you were saying earlier about purification, right? So the, the dead animal reminds us this is what we would earn, what we would deserve if we broke the covenant. So when we break the covenant, which we do all the time, Israel never changed. We, their descendants, have not changed. Hence, Yom Kippur. Right? We, we continually break the covenant. So what we deserve is the fate of that animal. But we have rituals to purify us from the sins of breaking the covenant. One of them used to be to sacrifice an animal and share that meal with the divine. Once the temple was destroyed, of course, that was no longer the ritual. Now only Yom Kippur served as the central set of rituals that did that, that affected that, and our own process of teshuva, of repentance. How 
how come the blood on the altar is is pure and then elsewhere it is contaminated? It's not the blood that's contaminated. Okay. So the the blood only works as a purifying agent when you activate it. And you activate it by ritual slaughter. Okay. That I intend this animal for the altar for sacred purposes. And then it's taken to the priest and it's slaughtered and offered on the altar. That is what affects, what makes the blood a purifying agent. It's not the blood that contaminates when it's elsewhere. It's the death. Death contaminates always. So when women have their menses, that's perceived as a small death? Correct. Uh, Why? Because because you're losing an egg. Correct. Correct. Thank you. That that's one theory. I should be clear. That's a theory that it's connected to death. I like that theory because for me it rescues it from all that. Ew, they say we're dirty, right? So it's like no, actually, it's saying death. Where death touches life, there's it's it's existentially hard. It's weird. It's it alters things. It warps things for for a time. And again, anybody who's ever been at the deathbed knows that. Those of us who've been with dead people know that. That there's something that you're, you, there's something altered for a bit. You don't just go to the mall after that, right? It, the, the, there's something that happened, hopefully, there's something that happens for us, right, around contact with death. And that death touching life is kind of a, and so, then it makes sense that it happens with a corpse, it happens with a dead animal, it happens at menstruation when you lose a possible pregnancy, you know, it happens, it happens, it happens when you're ill, you know, and close, could be close to death. When you have a baby and we're certainly close to death, you and the infant, and if you live, that was a great thing, but you, but you would, but, but it meant you escaped death, right? So, um. certainly with menses, could interpret it as cleansing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I have to believe that in the ancient world, you know, even before we're talking about Israel, that women bled for seven days and didn't die. Right? There's already you bleed for seven days internally and generally. That is a brush with death. So I'm not sure. Once upon a time, it wasn't understood that women remarkably mm-hmm. cheat death once a month. Well, Advocate. Sure. If uh, having losing the egg, so that's a death. How again does Judaism condone abortion when that is a purposeful death? Because the abortion was to save the mother's life. Her life is more valuable. If it comes down to picking one, the person who's here, that life is worth the sacrifice of a life that is not yet here. So that interpretation becomes very liberal. Correct. Most of us don't go to the mikvah every month. Most of us don't have an acknowledgement anymore that menses is about death. That consciousness is gone for a lot of us. So abortion, I mean, it just isn't the same. And again, it's not... It's not that it's valued so much that she's made impure. It's that you have carried a potential life that died in you. You are contaminated by that death. It's not that it's so special that you're going to now be made. What I heard you say, was it so special? How could you then do abortion? Right. That's not it. That You've been contaminated internally by death. You now need to be ritually purified. Right? It's not. It's not the. It's not that you lost a life, and so you do this. It's that you lost a life, hence you are contaminated by death. Is the theory that if you hold with that theory, that's the theory. All right. Yes. We good. All right. Atem nitzavim hayom kuchem. It would appear. That we have a redundancy here. What is the redundancy? If it says atem, why does it need to say kuchem? Right? Y'all stand here this day 
all y'all. Right? So the rabbi said, well, why is Kuchem here? And then we understand why Kuchem is here. Because it's not the usual Atem. Atem can often mean you males of a certain age, right, who make up the community, the authorities of the community, if you will, who usually counts. <coughs> it's not just Atem. It's all y'all. And in case it's not clear, Roshechem, right, your heads, Shivtechem, there's lots of discussion about what that means, but let's say officials, people in positions of responsibility, Ziknechem, your elders, Vishotrechem, right, another word for kind of people with a different kind of set of responsibilities, Kol Ish Yisrael, every person of Israel. But because it says Ish Yisrael, what does Ish mean? Men. Men, man. Every person of Israel. Because when we say he, Amy, we mean he and she. Right? So sometimes this can be the general he, all men are created equal. We're supposed to read women into that as well. That can be Ish. But Torah's being very clear, it goes on to say, here's what it means. And so that there is absolutely no question. Tapchem, your little ones. Neshechem, your women. Vegercha asher bekerev machanecha. And the stranger that is in the midst of your camp. Just so we're clear. All y'all means all y'all. It means everybody, including those who often are left out in a in a legal sense, meaning you know that are not people who make legal decisions. Who is bound by this covenant? Who are the people involved in this covenant? Every man, woman, and child, and the stranger who lives among you. Everybody is involved in this covenant. Hmm? Yep. Presumably, yes. And we see that at Shabbat, right? That even slaves rest. The duplicate is with, further on with the, again, with the, everybody standing here and those who are not with us. That's the duplicate. In other words, emphasizing that everybody. Right, in verse... Uh, in verse 9. You're talking about 13. Ah, no, we're going to go there. We're going to go there. Thank you for pointing that out, Reuben. We're going there in a minute, but it means something different there. So from the person who chops your wood to the person who draws your water. So we are clear that this is across age. This is across gender. This is across Status in terms of Israelite versus resident alien. And now we get that it is also across social and economic class. It's interesting what it doesn't say. Which is? Because, well, what, er, much earlier when there are the tribes uh-huh. and they're around the um, tabernacle, it's uh-huh. this tribe over here and this tribe over there. This does not say the men on the left and the women in the balcony and the children <laughs> separately. It doesn't separate them at all, and doesn't say stand in different places. I'm wondering how there's no machitza here. At least it's not in the text. Correct, because presumably here there's not an intention that for some reason needs to be. I mean, the machitza idea is later about concentration, right? That men can't concentrate on their prayers when they're around women. You can't help but notice the descending order of priorities on this list. So so we can be either distressed that there's a stratified society or focus on the fact that there's always been a stratified society. There's still a stratified society. And the reason it's outlined so in such detail is to say, don't think that because it's a resident alien who collects your garbage that they are not just as implicated in this agreement as you are. 
They are no less standing before God than you, you privileged Israelite. Yeah, I was just, you know, it always just gets you with the one with the women's order. After, after children. After children, you know. <laughs> yeah. Is odd. But there's a lot that comes ahead. And so I guess it should be, we're just glad to be included, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Well, there's another way to look at it, is us women, we're paying attention. So God needs to call out those men first. <laughs> 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 the women were like, well, duh, we're ready. But those guys over there, you better get their attention. Good luck with that. All right. Hilarious. <laughs> All right. Very nice save, Lynn. <laughs> so, so to be clear, who, what is all y'all doing to enter into the covenant of Adonai, your God? which Adonai, your God, is, right, cutting with you today with its sanctions, which is why I don't like the word that I have, which is concluding with you. What do you all have as your translation? Concluding. Concluding. Much better to say that this covenant that God is cutting with you today with its sanctions. The word cut goes directly to Sanctions, right? That's the point of cutting, is to, ooh, I just realized, I was thinking of, you know, like, so, um, which is very interesting, now that I think about it. Maybe I'm just tired, it's Rosh Hashanah, it's been a crazy week, but that same idea of cutting is about releasing, right? People who cut are trying to release something that's built up that's that has nowhere to go right that kind of either anxiety or trauma or shame or or fear right and the cutting is about releasing that i wonder if there isn't some primal connection for us right to this you know, you cut the animal for the same reason right it's about you know releasing what happens when we are as a people behaving in ways that are bad Shame inducing, damaging. Very interesting. Well, that's what it comes from. It comes from, because if I break my agreement in this deal, I take upon myself the understanding that I deserve this. Usually that wasn't the, the cost, but the idea is ritually I've incurred guilt that, that I'm deserving of being cut in half. Now I have to do something to, to escape that fate and that's right the animal stands in for you that gets sacrificed that kapara kapara shep and kaporas right we know about swinging the chicken right to I swear there's a I promise there's a connection um Swinging the chicken. The chicken takes on the sins and then you snap its neck. Kapara is Yom Kippur is all about we deserve to be cut in half. We have all these elaborate rituals to take that off of us and so we get another year, right? And Teshuvah is part of that. Repentance and atonement is part of that. Fasting is part of that. But there's other rituals like sending the goat out right into the desert like there's junk that has to be taken off of us and put on that animal and that animal is banished although some say it was thrown off a cliff so um there's residual right and that, and then until that's cleaned up we are still in the position of being implicated for deserving to be cut in half I mean, I, I think that's. It's a different. I think that's a different connection because that that's about about pulling things out, you know, of the body. I think it's a little different. But I mean, not that it matters. Who knows? All right. So God is cutting this covenant with you 
to the end that God may establish you this day as God's people and to be your God as God promised you and as God swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we're going to go to Reuben's point. Not only with y'all do I cut this covenant with its sanctions, not with you only, but both with those who are standing here with us this day, with Adonai, our God, and with those who are not here today. That's who is not just y'all. Even more inclusive. So what is it inclusive of, Reuben? Well, it says here, uh, those who are... You read (laughs) below the line, didn't you? You read the commentary. Right, us. So generally, one cannot obligate, generally, there are exceptions, one doesn't obligate somebody who's not there to a covenant. That's unusual. You wouldn't generally do that. There are exceptions. This is the famous exception in our case, which is I cut it not only with you, but with everyone who's not here, which the rabbis have read across the board to mean us, to mean everyone who would someday be either born into this covenant, or I love it too that our rabbinic tradition is, or anyone who would choose any at any point to be part of the Jewish people. That anyone who would ever be Jewish was at was there is is read into this covenant. Doesn't have to be by birth; it can be by choice. But here it is: you who are here, and you who are not yet. You might read, not yet here, are bound by this sacred agreement. Is it the only exception that we? Uh, you mean um, people who aren't there? Yeah. yeah, there were some things that if you, there are some agreements that you make that your children and grandchildren and their children are bound by the terms of the agreement. Um, so that so it's not the only place we see it, but but it's unusual and and that it involves everybody and then to say and everybody who's not here like we've never seen it at this level like this this broadly and it's bringing up implicated. the fathers so generations before I mean, well this is done across the spectrum across the spectrum does this account for our tradition of not proselytizing no no no. Um, proselytizing stopped when there were sanctions of death imposed on Jews who were proselytizing and teaching Torah to non-Jews. So under Rome, times like that where it was a threat to be converting people to Judaism, there were times in the early rabbinic period that we were actively proselytizing. I thought that If you look at Alenu, if you look at the language of Alenu with which we close every prayer, every prayer, every um, service, the vision is we were chosen to bring ethical monotheism to the world and everybody would choose to be Jewish. On that day, the world, right, there will be one God and that God will be called Everybody will recognize the truth of the Jewish people and the whole world will be worshiping Yudhevafe and calling God Yudhevafe. So there's some visions. Hmm? It has not worked out that way. Um, although some people point to, you know, the three monotheistic traditions of at least, you know, there's a lot of folks heading that way. Um, but so there's tension, and some people deny this claim, but I've seen enough that I'm convinced, personally, that there was at one point kind of a universal vision that everybody would get it. Like the prophets, right? They, 
that yes, we are the chosen to bring this to the world, but that the whole world was someday going to go, duh. Those Jews, they're 100 percent right. Would, would that have been the motivation behind the wording here that we picked up? I mean, the idea of those that are not here could be looked at expansively. Yes, it could. It absolutely could. That's right. That's that's exactly right. I think there is there's right here is the potential right to expand the idea of with whom is this covenant. I think the language is very clearly open here, and um, and that it was it was the the danger of proselytizing that had a stop. What's interesting is that that danger was so ingrained that we then said we are not a people who proselytizes. Right? Like, it's like, wow, that's pretty ingrained. Like, cause that's not true. It just isn't true. Um, it became true because we were in such danger for it. Remember the, the custom of you're supposed to, if you want to convert, go to a rabbi and be turned down three times. That's what it comes out of. Did anyone who came to you to learn Torah, you were suspect. Are they a spy? Are they setting me up? If they're coming to convert and I agree, I just put my life in danger. This is the tradition of saying no. No, right? And no again, no, until you're sure this is an honest conversion. Not because you're afraid they're not going to keep Shabbos, right? But Which is how it is now, but um, in some circles. It was more about, is this person coming to report me to the authorities? All right. Fifteen, somebody. Oh, no, no, wait. Thirty, chapter thirty. Someone read here. When all these things befall you, the blessing and the curse that I have set before you, and you take them to heart amidst the various nations to which the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, and you and your children heed his command with all your heart and soul, just as I enjoin upon you this day, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and take you back in love. He will bring you together again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your outcasts are at the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will, get, will gather you, from there he will fetch you. And the Lord your God will bring you to the land that your fathers possess, and you shall possess it. He will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. Then the Lord your God will open up your heart and the hearts of your offspring to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul in order that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all those curses upon the enemies and foes who persecuted you. You, however, will again heed the Lord and obey all his commandments that I enjoin upon you this day. And the Lord your God will grant you abounding prosperity in all your undertakings, in the issue of your womb, the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your soil. For the Lord will again delight in your well-being, as he did in that of your fathers, since you will be eating the Lord your God and keeping his commandments and laws that are recorded in this book of the teaching. Once you return to the Lord your God with all your heart. Go on. Surely this instruction which I enjoin on you this day is not too baffling for you, nor is it beyond reach. It is not in the heavens that we should say, Who among us can go up to the heavens and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who among us can cross to the other side of the sea and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it? No, the thing is very close to you, in your mouth and in your heart, to observe it. Go on. See, I set before you this day life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his laws, and his rules, that you may thrive and increase, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land that you are about to enter and possess. But if your heart turns away, and you give no heed, and are lured into the worship and service of other gods, I declare to you this day that you shall certainly perish. You shall not long endure on the soil that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life if you and your offspring would live, 
by loving the Lord your God, eating his commands, and holding fast to him. For thereby you shall have life, and shall long endure upon the soil that the Lord swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So I purposely did not interrupt Richard, because you can hear the language of the Deuteronomist. Do you hear the grandeur of the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic poet? A prophet. Somebody who, these words are speaking truth. And we might have different ways of understanding that truth, but for us as a people, this still resonates, at least for some of us. If we follow what we know is life-giving, if we are just and righteous and compassionate and empathetic and forgiving and good and courageous and righteous, good things flow from that. And when we turn on one another and when we are greedy and when we turn away from the path and when we are self-centered and hateful and vengeful and angry, terrible things happen. We know this. Terrible things happen to the planet Terrible things happen to its creatures. Terrible things happen to us. And we pass poison to our children. In the sky, in the river, in the ocean, in the fish they eat. We pass on death and disease and destruction and exile and massive amounts of people crossing from Hungary. Seventy people dying in a truck trying to give their children life because they have been displaced by violence and war. Innocent people. The three-year-old lying on the beach. A man watching his wife and two children drown, trying to get them to safety. That is what we have a choice about. This year and every year. And for me, the profound and prophetic words of Deuteronomy right before the high holy days could not fall, hopefully, on hearts that are more ready to hear that we have once again the opportunity to choose. We do not believe in fate as a people. That's too easy. We are a people that understands it is our responsibility to change And to choose life. It's given to us both. The blessing and the curse. Every day. Every year. Will we choose life? What will it take for us to make that choice? That is what the Yamim Noraim are all about. What is it going to take from me right now, this year, to contribute to a world that is different than what we see when we turn on the television or open the newspaper. And Rabbi Mayor Schweiger says one of the things it's going to take is for us to truly choose life. Not devices, not our addictions to staying busy and crazy, but to choose life, real life. Not virtual reality, real life. And that that's right now hard for a lot of us to put things down that pull us out of life and out of engaging with life and each other and ourselves and our inner lives. And that we say we want life. We all say, well, of course we want to live. Who wants to die? And yet... We step out of life all the time. We turn away from it all the time. Because it's hard. Life can be hard and it can be scary. And it can be filled with the unknown. And we don't want to acknowledge that because that's really scary. And that's why the liturgy that we're going to confront at these high holy days again reminds us, you have no idea what's coming in the year. 
I had no idea because we're asked to stand with the stark reality of that and let it scare us a little. It's meant to scare us. And anyone who wants to sugarcoat that has missed the point. It's not to scare you into then disengaging. It's to scare us into it's fleeting. It's fast. It's gone like that. And we never know when. So if we want, we can choose to fully enter life and community and this gift of time that God willing we're given another year. Rabbi Baruch HaLevi, which is not what I'm giving you, I'm giving you something else, says the first thing we do during the High Holy Days is come together, nitzavim, we stand together before God as a single spiritual unit. We do this out of a very deep instinct. We need each other now. We need each other deeply. Here in the full flush of the reality of the life and death nature of this ritual, of this covenanting ritual, here in the full flush of our impotence as individuals to meet this most urgent emergency, our need for each other is immense. We heal one another by being together. We give each other hope. And we know for sure by ourselves, ain banu ma'asim. There's nothing we can do. But gathered together as a single, indivisible entity, we sense that we do in fact have efficacy as a larger, transcendent spirit unit one that has been expressing meaning and continuity for 3,000 years, one that includes everyone who is here and everyone who is not here, all those who are joined in that great stream of spiritual consciousness from which we have been struggling to know God for thousands of years. We now stand in that stream. That is the first thing that we do. The words of... Rabbi Alan Liu in his book, This is Real, and You Are Completely Unprepared. Quoted by Rabbi Baruch HaLevi. I've given you something else. Bert, you want to start reading the promise? Oh, no, promise. Drop, drop down to, um, you stand here this day, all of you, in the middle you of the page. You stand here this day, all of you. Every person in the community the young and old, men and women and children, immigrants and native-born, laborers and leaders. We are all called together in the Torah portion that we read right before Rosh Hashanah, Parshat Nitzavim, to renew our covenant with God. And not just with you alone am I reestablishing this covenant, but with all who are here today and all who are not here today. The past, present, present, and future are conflated to create a moment that encompasses all of existence. If we truly show up for such a moment in these precious days, will we be ready for it to change us too? Go on. Our covenant with the God of the past, present, and future is renewed in the most radical trans-historical context of communal return. God isn't only interested in each of us as individuals and all our preciousness, but it is uh, is clearly as invested in us as a collective. Despite all our individualism and autonomy, we don't stand before God only as our single selves, but also as part of a larger, radically trans-historical Jewish people. Jewish philosophers and theologians, including Rabbis Joseph Dov Soloveitchik, an Orthodox thinker, and Eugene Borowitz, a liberal reform thinker, have taught us have taught of this dual sanctity and double bond with God, both individually and collectively, as foundations of the covenant. Something we don't do very much as Americans in 2015. We are all about the individual, our rights, our even our responsibilities, but it is so focused on the individual. And for all of the great reasons historically that that is, and all the wonderful things that that has meant, and all of the things it's meant for rights and for liberation of all kinds of peoples and populations, it's fantastic and needs to be balanced 
with an understanding of the collective and listening to the coverage of the Syrian refugees. And now the big discussion in Europe is, well, why should it fall on the first country they get to? Why is it all on Hungary? Oh, Greece, actually, even before Hungary. Greece can't handle it. Greece can't handle themselves. And then they're in collapse, economic collapse. So then they get to Hungary. And now Hungary is trying to process thousands and thousands of refugees. And the question becomes, shouldn't they be given sanction all over Europe? Shouldn't each European community have to step forward and accept a certain amount of the burden? And, of course, there's a huge fight about it. So it's not even just us as individual people that we have to challenge in terms of how we think about things, particularly at this time of year for us, but also as countries, as societies. When when are we going to get it? We're arguing over whether I we should have to take X amount of rep. Really? Really? I mean, kind of amazing irony, the, the country that stepped up the most is Germany. Right, right. Hopefully, meaning, right, there have been some... Well, there's some lessons learned by history. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. One can hope. Um, Austria, right? <laughs> Hungary, a lot of these places. That, but um, well, we signed up for ten thousand. Hmm? We signed up for ten thousand. That's right. That's a big. That's a big yeah. number. It'll take us two years to vet. <laughs> so this, you know, it's not. It's not just theoretical. This is not just theory. This is not just a lovely, lofty idea. This is a call. When are we going to get it? That it's about us collectively. That we've got to break out of this idea that only my country, only my whatever, fill in the blank, has a right to the dignity of basic necessities being met. So... Individual and collective, they're both critical. They're both important. It is a balance. It's the foundation of a covenantal relationship. I have my own responsibilities and my own challenges, my own repair, my own ways to contribute. Me, uniquely, this year as a unique period, even in my history, in my life, absolutely critical to the foundation of the covenant. And all of us, trans-historical, what does it mean to remember? We are but a blip in the ark of the Jewish people. And a lot of us would say humanity. And this whole grand experiment of spirits being put in bodies. Or bodies being put in spirits, however you want to think about it. (laughs) Right? Exactly. All right. Bodies wrapped around spirits. What a remarkable adventure. That ark is a long ark. We are asked to think trans-historically. Don't just think about the impact you're having on things for your generation. What are we handing our children and their children and their children and their children? Are we handing them a blessing? Life? Or are we destroying it to the point that they won't have any hope of turning the climate ship? There are scholars who say, scientists who say, it's on us. We have 30 years maximum. And when that 30-year window closes, it's over. And our great-grandchildren won't be able to reverse the effects of what we've given them. As a planet. Beyond this covenantal significance, it seems that we stand together, especially these days, so that we might be motivated by the power of community together, whether on a mountain or in a valley or in the myriad of places we will gather in the coming days. We are more likely to grasp the power of our shared narrative and what it can inspire us to become. These are the moments that give us a deeper sense of what it means 
to be committed to something beyond ourselves, beyond our individual needs, and beyond time. So as we gather for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we are tempted to be frustrated by parking. We're frustrated about the heat and standing in line. And we're frustrated we didn't get a seat in the sanctuary. We're in overflow. And I believe Hartman is calling us to instead focus on how fantastic it is to have this many of us show up. This many of us come together because that is the power of community is to say we get it that we're in this together. This is not a solo flight. This is a jumbo jet. We need each other. And you all can experience that together, but nobody gets it as much as we do on the Bima. Looking out at the Jews, looking out at our allies, looking at those who choose to come together with us, even if it's just for this afternoon. Looking out at every single unique face and other moments, just the sea of people searching for how to do this better, willing to spend that time being challenged. What a fantastic thing. So as we deal with the crowds and we deal with what it means and the noise level of that many Jews gathered in one place, let us also truly allow ourselves to be moved by the call of community and let us be emboldened in our hopes by that big a community, by the power of community. Shana Tova, Umetukar, should be a good and sweet new year for all of us. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.